I got to say first though, you you ride a unicycle? <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't. I I stopped riding it, but at one point I used to ride them all over town. <laughs> I had like four different unicycles. One of them was a giraffe. It was uh, I think it was like five or six feet tall. That's <laughs> amazing. It's yeah, like you, that was pretty cool. It was either like hiking or like Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> it was yeah, like one yeah, of the yeah. other. Steve chose hiking. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a unicycle story. Oh, you do? Let's hear it. I do, yeah. So, Well, it's, we were talking about 83 um, previously, so like... What a weird show, right? We, When I was a kid, like, yeah, yeah, so going back to 1983, <laughs> I was probably about that age, we had this kid that moved in with, it, like, this old couple lived up the street for whatever reason. I think the grandkid was, like, getting in trouble or something, and he had to get kicked out of his house, so we moved in with the grandparents. So he was, like, the cool older kid in the neighborhood, <laughs> and the reason he was cool was because he had a unicycle, which was, like... In the, when you were a kid in the 80s, like if somebody had a unicycle and he knew how to ride it, that was like magic to us. We were like, this guy's the coolest thing ever. So he used to ride his unicycle around. And I remember he used to let us all try to ride the unicycle. And I remember just completely like wiping yeah, out and tough. bashing my head. So if there's anybody in the old, we used to call our neighborhood Looney Hill. So I don't know if any of my old friends listen, but huh. the Looney Hill crew, we all used to take turns trying to do a unicycle. We could never do it, but I did figure out how to ride one <laughs> when I got a little, little bit older. You just got to get the momentum going right away and don't hesitate. Right. Yeah, they say anyone can, anyone can learn how to ride one in 10 to 15 hours. And it doesn't have to be 10 to 15 hours straight. It could be like a half an hour each day. And then it just clicks after that. It totally does. Yeah, it's funny. That's hilarious. Do you know how to juggle, Steve? I don't know how to juggle. (laughs) If I did, I would have been juggling going down the road on one. (laughs) Broadcasting from the Woodpeckers studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stomp. All right, we are live. So, Stomp, I, I've been uh, back in 1983. I went down the rabbit hole. I've been doing research for the segment that we're doing later on. At, at the 83. End. Well, I was born in 69. Don't make me do math, please. Yeah, yeah. How, how old were you in 83? 87, I graduated from high school, so that's a little preview. Maybe junior high. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Yeah, ju- junior high. All right, so you were... Oh, man. Yeah, I was, I was 11. I was 11. But I've been um, I've been researching this thing, so for the audience, we'll, um, it'll become apparent why I was doing this research later on the show, but um, it was interesting. I was reading like a bunch of newspaper articles in 83, and it's like the same shit. Huh. You know, in the news about like the economy is going to hell, and it's all doom and gloom. So it's it's yeah, it hasn't changed much. But it was interesting. Like I was reading about, um, we invaded Grenada, I think back then, and then we also uh, had the Beirut bombing. I don't know if you remember that either. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I feel like our audience skews older, and they'll understand what we're talking about. But maybe not. I could be wrong. Yeah, except for Stephen Rodriguez. The young guy in the group. <laughs> he's, he's the he's the pup tonight, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stephen, do you understand what I'm talking about here? Do you even know what the Beirut bombing is? No, I'm sorry, Mike, I don't. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that's your homework to do some research here. So. How about, do you remember Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Give me a break. 
What about, you know what? Another thing that came out, this blew my mind, is, you know what came out in 83 was Fraggle Rock. <laughs> oh, oh I love Fraggle Rock. HBO. Okay, now we got Steven woken up here, too. Yeah, um, that was a good show. Yeah. That's hilarious. 83 that came out, so. Anyway, Man. But, um, so anyway, we'll talk about that later on the show. Um, and I bought, I want to get, so we have Steven and Steve here, and I definitely want to get their perspective on it's a, a missing persons case that happened on Mont Lafayette in 1983 that's still missing persons. So we'll, we'll cover that later in the show. But Stomp, anything to do with um, sponsorship or coffee talk you want to share with us? Let me dig up my thing. I know we had one from KDK. She gave us three coffees. Thank you, Katie Kay. She's she's an acquaintance, and uh, she's very cool. So thank you for the support. And as usual, a special thanks to our sponsor, who has been kind enough to send out their craft brewer tonight to join us, Stephen, um, at Reckless Brewing. We, do you want the do you want the official voice for the voiceover voice, Steve? Yeah, dude, I, I laughed out loud at the voice. <laughs> All right, <laughs> see if I could pull it off again. <clears throat> A special thanks to our sponsor, At Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun. Just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the five corners. Thank you. Well done. A little rusty. Yeah, a little rusty. (laughs) It's kind of creepy, but that's that's okay. (laughs) And Mike wants to know where the, the five corners are. Like, can you give us a detailed explanation on the five corners? I said it was just a, a junction of roads. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. When, uh, so if you're leaving Franconia Notch and you're headed north, you're going towards Twin Mountain. Um, the five corners is that big intersection where Gale, Gale River Road Loop meets up with Trudeau Road and Route. That's what right I thought. There. Yeah. Because there, there is one in Vermont. There's a five corners in Vermont. Oh, That's I why I was that. a little hesitant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I don't know, maybe Woodsboro or some somewhere gotcha. over there. So I was hesitant when Mike asked. I'm like, mm, it's a junction of roads? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, from right Play there, it safe. there's uh, Garfield, Galehead right down the street, and uh, the BTA, Bethlehem Trail Association, Mountain Bike Trails, also start awesome. right there from the five corners. All right, cool. Nice. Yeah. So Stump, we have two Steve. We have a Steven and a Steve here. How are we supposed to differentiate when we're talking to, to our guests? Well, I was thinking we'd have one be Steve and one be a Esteban, maybe. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> I can't. I don't know if I'm going to remember that. Steve R and Steve M. How about Steve R? How about Mason Adrenaline and Steve? Yeah, you could just say Mason and Steve. I'll go by Mason. There okay. you go. Right. That'll, That'll work. That makes it easy. That makes it easy. So we're good to go. We're going to go through the show summary here. That so you wrote this stomp, but I have to read this. So I'll uh, I'll do my best. Good luck. All right. So tonight we're happy to welcome. I wrote it like a fanboy, by the way. I was like, I got to write this because I've got a crush on Steve because he's killing it. I wrote this is Steve, think of it as a fanboy writing this. Okay. <laughs> right, so anyway, so the summary. So tonight we're happy to welcome the latest supernova in the hiking galaxy, Steve Mason. When Steve isn't crushing fastest known times, he's plotting out his next grand adventure. High miles, check. Max elevation, check. Fearless, double check. So join us tonight to find out why uh, Mason goes by the apt moniker 
Mason Adrenaline on the socials and why Slasher has come up with an additional trail name following Steve's latest accomplishments. We'll also be joined by our craft brewer and SAR member Stephen Rodriguez from Reckless Brewing to talk about the latest happenings, food and craft beer at Bethlehem's finest brewery. Finally, after a bit of Q-word spell, I don't understand that. A bit that. of a Q-word. A bit of a Q-word spell. Quiet. Oh, oh sh- I blew it. Okay, I don't understand that, but okay. If, if you say quiet, you, yeah. you're going to jinx it. Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> whatever Stomp just said, and we'll talk about a few search and rescue events and look back at a mysterious White Mountains case from 1983. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, that was a disaster. I'm for now on no more writing the, <laughs> the summaries. Stomp, I'll do, Dude, I'll do that am- part. You were MIA for like 48 hours. We were like, man, maybe maybe Mike is the new uh, missing person here. We're going to have to sit on the search. Yeah, been it's been busy. It's been busy. I, so I took last well, Friday good. off of work to do um, yeah. that Reach the Beach run. And okay. I was you know, I was just playing catch up. So Oh, my buddy ran that. Uh, did he? Yeah. Did he like it? Yeah. It was the first yeah. time he's ever done it, so it wore him out, but uh, they did really good, the team he was on. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So we, I've done it for the last 10 years or so, and it's a fun race for the audience if you're not familiar with it. Reach the Beach starts at Brenton Woods and then goes to Hampton, New Hampshire, and typically you run with 12 people spread across two vans. We had 10, so we were down two people, which is not that big of a deal because you just pick up the extra miles, but... It's not like bad because you you run about 20 to 21 miles total for each runner, but where it gets difficult is, and your friend probably said this, Mason, is that um, that's that last run, like you don't get a lot of sleep and then you got to get up and do that last run on the second day and it's just, it's brutal. Yeah, he actually said he ran 37 miles in 27 hours. Oh, wow. So they must have been, the, they do have these teams that are ultra teams where like one van will do the whole thing. Yeah, it wasn't ultra. Oh, yeah, one. those wow. people are animals. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. But um, but it's a good time. It's a rolling circus. I'm sure that all the people up in northern New Hampshire don't really, all the, the lakes region aren't really thrilled when we're all running through there. But it's a fun event and it's used as a fundraiser for a lot of the local um, groups in the area in the lakes region and up in Conway and stuff. So it's fun. Mm-hmm. So back to beer talk. Yeah, so what do we got for beer? No beer for me. I'm doing a Mama Rita in, pre- in preparation for our month off. Yeah, exactly. So sober October. So this will actually be dropping in October, but just for everyone so you don't give us a hard time, we will be starting sober October once October starts. So we're still like getting our last fix in here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going going in all in. Are you clean and sober? Me, yeah, I am. I've been uh, I've been sober for eight years. Awesome. Fourth uh, of July eight years ago, and uh, okay. it's it's funny because um, whenever like we do a hike or something, like they would all everybody would you know we'd go out for dinner afterwards, you know, and everybody would get like an IPA or something, and I always yeah. liked the smell of them, and um, like they'd always smell like grapefruit or something, and and then um, yeah, that's what I think too. And one day I found, uh, just recently, um, my friend Gwen had told me about, uh, athletic brewing company. You guys heard of them? Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so I, um, so I'm hooked on those things now. So what is it like a beer? Like a, it's an, it's a non-alcoholic beer. IPA. Pretty pretty decent. 
Yeah, huh. I think I th- you ever had one, Steve? Uh, no, I've, I haven't had them, but the NA beers are huge and they're popping up all over the place right now. I don't know because I've never had an alcoholic IPA, but uh, I've been mm. told they're they're pretty good. Nice. Yeah. So we're going to let Steve take over and give us the latest news on Reckless and what they've been up to for food and brews and stuff like that. But has Reckless ever thought about delving into the uh, non-alcoholic? Um, nothing's really off the table, I guess. But yeah. right now I don't. I don't know. There's there's definitely interest. Um, so yeah. we've we've been we've been talking about it. You know, doing some research, try to figure out the best way for us to to incorporate something like that. Mm-hmm. But we're always willing to to go outside the box, try to do something fun, something new, make the clientele happy. So what is going on there? Give us the update from Reckless. Well, on that note, one of the many things that that I have to share tonight, we just brewed. I can't believe I'm going to say this. We just brewed our first. Pumpkin ale, a little uh, while ago, <laughs> and um, that's a riot. I like it a lot more than I thought I was going to. I think we're actually going to end up brewing it again. If this is coming out in October, then probably pretty soon after this drops, we'll uh, we'll be getting a new batch on. Um, it's really great. Mm-hmm. I I think that the 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 pumpkin flavor definitely outshines the spice flavor. You can't have pumpkin without, you know, nutmeg and cinnamon and whatnot. But I think it's really well balanced. Right, right. Such so that I, somebody who doesn't like drinking, you know, uh, pumpkin spice latte or whatever, I like the beer. Sure. I like the beer. I think it's really good. It's a good example. I bet you guys would have done something really clever with it, too. I'm curious about the process with the pumpkin itself. Totally. I can tell you about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. You have the floor. We um, we We used... A couple of actual real pumpkin pies, <laughs> um, mostly just for mostly just for show. Then, uh, then we ended up using, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the measurement. It was like forty pounds, I think, of pumpkin. Then, over the course of fermentation, we'd add the different spices. So we added some cinnamon, some nutmeg, some vanilla, and uh, gave it plenty of time to chill out and clear up. And it looks really pretty. The color is very nice. Hmm. We gave it a funny name after um, uh, Jackaro. And it was a play on Jack-O-Lantern and Jackaro. So that's what we called it. Another really cool beer we've got coming up is going to be something that we're doing with the uh, Ski the Whites guys over in Jackson. Mm-hmm. They do they do coffee roasting. So Ski the Whites Coffee Company is going to come by. They're going to they're gonna sh- uh, give us some coffee. And we're going to make a beer with it. And that's hopefully going to be coming out in either the end of October or the beginning of November. Pretty excited for that one as well. Okay. So like a stout or what are you going to make out of this? Hmm. I don't a want to spoil this. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the surprise. It's a, okay. little, it's a little bit different than a coffee stout. And that's all I'm going to say okay. about tonight. You'll have, to, you'll have to stay tuned and find out. But if you like coffee and you sure like enough. beer and you like local craft then this is a really good uh, combo. Excellent. And? Last thing I want to talk about is our new website that we just we just had oh. pop up, um, recklessbrewing.com. It's uh, reckless, R-E-K-L-I-S, brewing.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got everything on there. We just dropped a new food menu, so new food menus up there. We've got a tab for all of our retail locations, so if you're living in you know, the southern part of the state, you want to see where you can pick up Reckless. That's up there as well. 
Um, it's got links for our um, events. We can do events. Um, we've got a catering license now. So if you're going to get married or throw a big party, hit Reckless up and uh, we can show you a really good time. Wow. That's fantastic. So there's a whole lot going on. And that's really all the time I want to take up of Steve of uh, Mason's time here because I'm very excited to hear what he's got going on. Hey, one thing I did want to throw out is uh, I was thinking about, I was listening to the the episode we did previously, and I know you, you said most of the time when you, when you guys get together to figure out like a name for a beer, you just kind of just get together, drink the beer, and just throw some ideas out. Mm-hmm. One of the things you should consider is using the... Um, what was that guy's name? Remember the remember that when the we did the episode and we did the oh English the Jack on history on English Jack. Yeah, you yeah. should use, you could use that as a name for a beer in the future. Keep that, Mike. I've I've thought about that. I've thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Or either that, or just like something like the you know the, um, the Hermit of Crawford Notch or something. You know, you could something totally. along that play. That would be a good good one. So. I like it a lot. Yeah, the the Jackaro beer was actually um, <clears throat> kind of a, a triple because it was you know play on jack-o'-lantern sort of a pumpkin beer then it was the song jack row and the third piece to tie it together was that we brewed it for a wedding and the last name of the wedding was row r-o-w-e oh nice so we just added an e to row and we got like a triple banger there it's time for slasher's guest of the week well i think it's time to introduce our primary guest steve mason is in the house aka mason adrenaline this guy's awesome he's um i mean winter summer you name it um now you're starting to get into the whole fastest known time arena i gotta say first though you you ride a unicycle uh yeah i haven't i i stopped riding it but at one point i used to ride them all over town (laughs) i had like four different unicycles one of them was a giraffe it was uh I think it was like five or six feet tall. <laughs> That's amazing. It's yeah, like you, that was pretty cool. It was either like hiking or like Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> it yeah, was like one yeah, of the yeah. other. Steve chose hiking. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a unicycle story. Oh, you do? Let's hear it. I do, yeah. So, Well, it's, we were talking about 83 um, previously. So, like, <laughs> What a weird show, right? We, When I was a kid, like, yeah, yeah. So going back to 1983, <laughs> I was probably about that age. We had this kid that moved in with it, like this old couple lived up the street for whatever reason. I think the grandkid was like getting in trouble or something and he had to get kicked out of his house. So we moved in with the grandparents. So he was like the cool older kid in the neighborhood. <laughs> and the reason he was cool was because he had a unicycle, which was like, in the, when you were a kid in the 80s, like if somebody had a unicycle and he knew how to ride it, that was like magic to us. We were like, this guy's the coolest thing ever. So he used to ride his <laughs> unicycle around. And I remember he used to let us all try to u- ride the unicycle. And I remember just completely like wiping yeah, out and tough. bashing my head. So if there's anybody in the old, lo- we used to call our neighborhood Looney Hill. So I don't know if any of my old friends listen, but huh. the Looney Hill crew, we all used to take turns trying to do a unicycle. We could never do it. But I did figure out how to ride one when I got a little bit, <laughs> little bit older. You just got to get the momentum going right away and don't hesitate. Right. Yeah, they say anyone can... Anyone can learn how to ride one in 10 to 15 hours, and it doesn't have to be 10 to 15 hours straight. It could be like a half an hour each day, and then it just clicks after that. It totally does. Yeah, it's funny. That's hilarious. Do you know how to juggle, Steve? I don't know how to juggle. (laughs) 
if I did, I would have been juggling going down the road on one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Well, tell us about yourself. Are you a resident of Mass down south? I originally was from Massachusetts, yeah, a small town called Maynard, Massachusetts. Now I live in Merrimack, New Hampshire. I've lived here since 2000. Same place, Merrimack. All right. And what, what do you do for work? I originally was a uh, tree climber. I took took down trees, pruned trees, stuff like that. I did that for yeah. about 22 years and then uh, just decided that I, I had it with that and um, started just driving a truck full time. And so now gotcha. I just drive for a company out of Concord. So are you driving locally or nationally or what? Uh, it's it's within New England. Gotcha. Doesn't impact your uh, your adventure schedule, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually pretty good because uh, it allows me to rest, you know, because I'm sitting down and <laughs> while I'm driving. And so that helps out. What got you into hiking? So uh, it all started like um, with running and um, I used to run races on the pavement and then I, that, that kind of got boring. And so then I like transferred into trail running. And then from there, I started doing obstacle course racing and all the obstacle courses were on mountains. So I'm like, we should train on mountains. Are you talking like Spartan and things like that? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tough Mudders and all the smaller ones that would pop up too. Um, and, and so I, you know, before that I'd hiked at like Wachusett and Monadnock and stuff like that, but n- nothing other than that. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine said, uh, oh, I, I read about this Franconia loop. <laughs> and so uh, he's like, we should, we should go up there and start training there. And um, so I can remember going up falling waters and hitting little haystack and just being blown away. And that's pretty much what triggered it. Um, once I saw that ridge, I was just hooked right there. Huh. Was that in that rough same time frame, like 2017? No, it was 2010 or 2000. It might have been like the end of 10, 11. Yeah, man. Once you see that, it's pretty wild. Um, so you're hiking 2010, and then sometime in what, 17, you started climbing, right? Technical climbing? I started just hiking a bunch of stuff, and then like I had random people I'd hike with here and there, and then... Um, and then hooked up with uh, some buddies that I hiked with that we hiked in a group. My friend Gwen Stratton, she invited me to start climbing indoors. And mm-hmm. then... Um, oh, so she was climbing first before you did? She was climbing well before me, yeah. She was climbing indoors. And then um, we talked about getting outdoors, you know, when the weather got better. We um, took a top roping class um, from the manager at um, Vertical Dreams, uh, Lee Hanch, and um, we learned a few things. <laughs> and then um, a few. <laughs> we were going up to see the Watcher. And on the yeah, way up to yeah. the Watcher, um, we, I saw the eaglet. And it, I mean, it, would ju- it just, I had to climb it right then. You know, that was right. it. I'm like, I saw that thing and I was like, I'm climbing it. But um, yeah. I didn't really know much. And so I just basically, um, I just bought all the gear, went to Patakaway and uh, walked around on the ground, sticking the gear and all the cracks and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, fantastic. And then uh, basically once I figured I knew enough, I, I asked Gwen if she trusted me, you know, and I said, you want to come to Patakaway and I'll show you what, I, what I've learned. And so we went to Patakaway and I showed her. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up going to um, the tram parking lot and the deal was we would hike up there and if she wasn't fully comfortable, then we would just go and climb over at Echo Craig right down the street. And um, sure. so, so, so had we, she done anything of this caliber? 
outside of the gym? We we had just no nothing like that. That was both our first multi pitch climb. Okay, because I got to <laughs> tell the the listeners, you, you your first climb was two months before the eaglet, so that's a quick turnaround time. My first climb was the eaglet, really. Uh, your first technical climb, from what I saw on your Insta, was like July, and then you did the eaglet in like September yeah, or something true. like that. Uh, it, we just did some top roping at uh, Echo Craig. So yeah, it was technically gotcha. climbing, but it, it was not. Um, it's not trad climbing it was all protected somebody set everything up for us and so it was pretty intense man yeah so we got to the parking lot and um (laughs) there was some people there and they were pulling some gear out and i asked them i said hey you going uh you climbing the eaglet and they said yeah i said you mind if i pick your brain on the way over there and they said absolutely so on the way up there we just started (laughs) talking to them and um I was asking them some questions, and and uh, they were telling me the first pitch. Uh, there's a move in the first pitch that was the hardest move in the climb. They thought, and uh, so I watched them. And when I watched them do the move, I just looked at uh, Gwen and I said, "Oh, we got this." So, so for the listeners, what what's a pitch? And try to tell people what the eaglet is that they may not know what the eaglet is. Oh, the eaglet's a spire, so it's like um, a freestanding spire. That's mm-hmm. so it's like a, a spear sticking up out of the ground. It's a couple hundred feet tall, um, and the top of it is about. You can get you know you can get a couple three people up on there comfortably. Quote unquote comfortably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be I'd be puking. When you talk about a pitch, it's usually a, a rope's length, and um, okay. a rope a rope's length is about sixty meters. But the pitch could be shorter than that. You know what I mean? But that's usually mm-hmm. what it what it what it stands for. Yeah, and I can um, I have a video. So I did a short video of of the watcher climb, and I took a bunch of uh, shots of the the eaglet. Matter of fact, I was like talking to myself. I was going solo up there, and I was kind of talking to myself, and and. Oh, I didn't realize there was people on top of the eaglet. <laughs> I was like, you, you know, you can hear pretty yeah. well there. So I was sort of swearing at myself for slipping and falling. But I'll include that video in the show notes so that people have an idea of this thing. It's it's pretty amazing. Awesome, yeah. So the the route that we went up was called the West Chimney, and uh, that's generally people do that in three pitches. Um, mm-hmm. So you so the 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 first guy is the lead climber, and he's going up and he's putting gear in cracks and and stuff like that, and uh, he's hooking, mm-hmm. he's clipping his rope into it, and um, and the the person below is is belaying for him, um, and so then you'd get up there, you'd get up to the top of the first pitch, and then I would. Uh, sh- she would follow me up and she'd clean all the gear in the way up. And then you just repeat the process until you get to the top. Well, when we seen this, the first guy go up and do that move that he said was the toughest move in the climb. Um, it just, it was, I thought it was not going to be a problem. So I said, we got this. And, um, so then it was our turn to climb and we climbed up there and then we met those guys at the bottom of the second pitch and uh they were they were heading up an area that um wasn't part of the cl- that route and uh and I had told them I and, and I'm a newbie you know I just started and I'm like yeah, everything I researched uh people don't go up that way and they were like no this is the way you go and um so anyways the the guy leading ended up pulling a boulder right out of the wall. I, I mean, this was the size of a hood of a Honda Civic, 
and it came yeah. down and it smashed the guy belaying and smeared him up against the wall, ripped his pant leg off. It was bad. It was bad. Oh, and, um, man. and then as this is happening, there's, there's two people on the top that are trying to repel off. And one of the guys got his hair caught in the repelling device. And so <laughs> here, Gwen and I, this is our first climb and all this stuff is going on around us. And, um, we ended up just like moving over to the side and letting everybody do their thing. And we ended up yeah. finishing the climb, repelling off the top of it. And it was, we joked about it because we, we knew nothing and we were the safest people on the climb that day. <laughs> that's funny. So that's, that's crazy that you guys, so <laughs> your first climb was the Eaglet. I would think that um, people would, you know, most people would kind of work their way up to that, but hey, yeah, it worked yeah. out. Yeah, it did. It, it it definitely worked out. I can't believe you went back out after that day. Seeing those <laughs> incidents. So uh, so after that, we just went across the street to Cannon, and uh, there's a route over there called Whitney Gilman. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, route. I've heard of that. Um, and that's um, this big ridge that just goes right up, and uh, it's a lot of people do that. And that was our second climb. Um, and we just had the most perfect day out there. It was me, Gwen, and my friend Gavin Brown. Um, and it was just a perfect day. Yeah. Do you feel like um, when you did, so all the work that you did in the climbing gym, what, did you pick up enough safety knowledge in the gym to apply that to climbing outside? No, honestly, um, I don't think any of it came from, I mean, I learned the basics in the, in the, in the indoor gym, but really, um, I was able to take all my climbing experience from climbing trees and, and, and transfer it into the rock. And yeah, it's different. Um, you know, because like in the trees, rock and trees are different, but it's this, the concept is the same, you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like when I'm uh, taking down a tree that's hanging over a house and I'm lowering all these pieces off the tree and not breaking the house, it's almost like me, you know, in the rock, you know, and, and so I'm, as I'm climbing up, I'm putting gear in and, and I practiced at Pawtuckaway quite a bit, you know, before I actually did it. Um, so, yeah. and I'm a research nut too. So I'm constantly, you know, just researching everything. Doing your homework. Now, if you could go back in time, if somebody was just starting off climbing, what advice would you give them to, to make sure that they're staying safe and doing it right? Yeah. I mean, I would probably start off in a gym and then, um, they have like, um, gym to Craig, uh, things that you can do. And I do something like that and uh, try to hook up with somebody who's more experienced and, uh, take lessons and things like that. Um, so you don't get yourself in a bad spot. Is it pretty likely, like if you just start climbing common areas that you're going to run into multiple people that are, that are, climbing and you can you can kind of connect with them or are people sort of more standoffish and they don't want to get involved with with rookies no no i well i mean climbers uh, i always you know they're always pretty helpful i found um like whenever i'm at rumney and talking to people or you know anywhere i've been but um i mean you're gonna see people that are less experienced and more experienced and you try to offer up anything you can if you if you can you know okay what have you done in the whites? What have you accomplished thus far in your immaculate journey here? 
I'm not a, a list guy. Um, no, and I have nothing. I have nothing against people who who are into lists, but it's just not my thing. Um, yeah. That being said, I've definitely done, you know, the the forty eights numerous times. Um, all of Vermont's four thousand footers and the main. I think I have two peaks that I haven't done in for the four thousand footers in Maine. Yeah, but um. Yeah, so I just like to do things that are um, I, that are different and and big and challenging, you know. And so slides and bushwhacks are something that have always interested me. And um, yeah, that's that's yeah, the same with me. How many uh, slides have you done? Oh man, um, so arrow, and then what's that one right on, on the Hancock Cedar Brooks? Is arrow and Cedar Brook on the Hancocks? Mm-hmm. Um, White wall, north twin slide, dog leg slide, um, uh, Downsbrook slide. Hmm, nice. Uh, guitar slide. What was what was your favorite? Um, I'm gonna say Lincoln's throat is probably my favorite. Oh yeah, man! I forgot to write that one down about you. I remember pictures that you posted about that. You. Yeah, you got to that head wall and you like just climbed right up it, right? We Tell all, yeah. There it. was a, it was, there was a bunch of us. So we, um, so we, we took. It's called uh, Walker's Brook, and it's right off Old Bridal Path, right at the junction mm-hmm. of Old Bridal and uh, Falling Waters. Um, right. You just follow, you follow that brook right up, um, and then you'll get. It's an ice climbing route, uh, Lincoln's Throne, mm-hmm. and it's probably. It's probably, uh, I'd say, about a, a 70-foot climb, um, and it, it probably has a rating at about a 5.6. Um, that rock, that's a rating rock climbers would use. And, um, right. And so there was, a, there was a group of us, and we all climbed up that and, um, and then made our way up onto the ridge, and then we went down the Lincoln Slide. Um, and then went over to Owl's Head from there. How does that 70-foot wall compare to something like Huntington's Ravine or something like that? Give us some perspective. Is it steeper? So Huntington Ravine, in my opinion, there would be a fall on Lincoln's throat would be, could be a little worse. It, it, it all would depend, I guess, on where you were. But like Huntington Ravine mm-hmm. is a lot more slabby it's almost like vertical for 60 feet, you know? Um, sure. but, but there's plenty <laughs> of handholds. Shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of handholds. Okay. So yeah. you're talking like a risky adventure. Did most of your party that day do it or did they skirt around it or it, can you even skirt around it? Yeah. So, yep, they did. <laughs> so four of us, I think four or five of us did it. And I think okay. Probably four of them, <laughs> they skirted around it, and uh, they came out, and they all looked like they'd been in a fight with a bear. And oh, they hell said yeah, it was right? the worst the thing they had ever done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think that bushwhack was too much fun for them guys. That's a riot. That's the way it works up at that altitude, you know? Yeah. I would say that was probably – that one or Lafayette Brook was, was probably my, my favorite. Well, I wanted to I want to ask you this later, but since we're talking about that, where does the Lowell shoot fall into that 
intensity? Like, was the Lowell shoot worse than so Lincoln's the, throat? Or okay, yeah. so I did feel like the Lowell shoot was brittle, and um, oh hell yeah, and but it was. All right, so the only part, like Lincoln's throat, it was just that one section where I feel was like a risky climb. You know what I mean? And sure. I felt like the Lowell shoot would have been easier because the sections were shorter. You know what I'm saying? So there oh, was, I right, felt, right. Because you've been there. And so, you know, so I felt like there was, if I'm remembering correctly on the Lowell shoot, there was three sections, but I feel mm-hmm. like they were only like 15 or 20 feet tall, maybe. Te- 10 to 20 yeah, feet exactly. tall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so smaller, I felt but like more numerous. Yeah, but it was definitely uh, a lot more brittle on the little, the little shoot. Which made it dangerous. Yeah, it's like you really had to plan out your, your hand holds and your feet. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, and I mean, even some, there, were, there were a couple times where I, I did and then uh, and just actually ended up pulling out on the little shoot, just pulling out my hand hold, you know, like, because it was mm-hmm. just all, I mean, it, was, it would shatter right in your hands. Um, yeah, so right. that was, it was dangerous in that sense, but I felt like it wasn't as, as tall. You'd still get hurt, exactly. you know, yeah. but, um, it, it that's a good way to feel, put it. Yeah. Which, which brings in a whole other aspect of, uh, danger in that area because I, I have heard stories and I've read blogs about like piano sized chunks of granite just peeling off the side of that, um, yeah, it's. I mean, the fact that you did it solo is probably safer than the way I did it with two other guys because yeah, we had stuff peeling off and just falling on us the whole time up, and it was really challenging. It's such a narrow gully that there's really no room to escape or hide or shelter anywhere. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I've we've been in uh, situations uh, on the landslide gully in Crawford Notch, and there's a section up in the in the top the top of that that's gotcha. that's kind of similar to that. And there was a few of us were up up in that, and uh, a rock had got dislodged and came down and like was bouncing and bouncing, and then just like bounced over one of our friends' heads, um, and just like literally like hit a rock, blew into three, and bounced right over his head. Yeah, I got a, a, a one question I did have for you around these slides is, as a matter of fact, I was looking at it this weekend when I was doing Reach the Beach. So when you are in, you know, you're at the Willie House and you're looking up onto Mount Webster, there's a number of different routes routes there that I think you can probably take up. Have you have done any of those slides on the Webster Cliff section? Yeah, that Landside Gully is the one that... Um that I was just talking about. And that's the one that you see if you're, if you're sitting at the, the Wiley house, if you're in that parking lot, you turn around or if you're at that yeah. Wiley house and you look, it's that that's landslide gully. You're looking at that goes straight up. Is is that the one that has the sort of the big wide, uh, it almost looks like a straight wall by the time you get up towards the top. There's also another slide off to the right. That's sort of much more narrow. Yeah. There's two of them I off see. to the right. One of them shoestring gully. And then there's one. So it would oh, go okay. landslide. Um, I forget the name of the one right to the right of uh, Landslide. I think it starts with a P. I'm not really sure of the name. but And then Shoestring Gully would be the next one. But Landslide right. is the one directly across. And it, it's a lot. You can see this like big slab section I think you're talking about. Got it. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't connect that. That was on the on the Webster side. I just don't know the names of those. So how would you? How difficult are those? Because it actually, like when I was looking at it, it doesn't look. It doesn't look crazy from the bottom, but I don't know how how insane it is when you get closer to the top. Uh well, there was so there was 
definitely spots that you could go around anything you weren't comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. But so you like you, it was actually like different types of rock that you'd encounter. So you'd, you'd, you're coming up a talus field at first and then you'd get into um, a slab, a big slab section. So if you're not comfortable in something like that, um, <laughs> you'd probably be scared and off to the side in the woods, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. if you were to slip, you'd just go sliding right down it like a slide. It wouldn't be good. Have you ever been in need of help or found yourself real close to needing needing to make that call? There's definitely been times that I've been cold and have, uh, you know, had to pick up my pace and move to try to go. I've never felt like um, there was ever a time that like I needed to make that call where I needed to be rescued. I always feel like I can I can self-rescue um, and get myself out of any situation that I'm in. And that's how I've always felt so far doing all the stuff that I've done. Okay. I mean, I've definitely had to do things that I wasn't completely comfortable with mm-hmm. um, to get out of stuff, but yeah, uh, I've always gotten myself out of everything I've gotten myself into. And do you feel like you're, you're prepared out there? Like, I, I don't want to jump ahead on the, the, topics here but um when you're doing like these really long 50 mile treks or whatever do you feel like you have enough in your pack and everything else and you're ready to go if you had a an injury yeah so i i feel like i have enough for for myself to survive mm-hmm. um it's definitely not um it wouldn't be comfortable but sure. uh, I think you have to make that call when you're doing these things because there's no way you're going to be able to go out there and pull off a 60-mile day if you have a pack that weighs a lot. And mm. you know what I mean? Sure. So, I mean, you, there's, risks, there's definitely risks involved. Right. And you're comfortable making those risks. <laughs> Yeah, they're all calculated risks. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, there's been times where I've been cold and had to um, not stop moving because of it. Um, but mm-hmm. those are the risks. Now, how about uh, Mount Kilimanjaro? You left you left the uh, continental U.S. and uh, made a big trip in 2018. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, a friend, uh, two friends of mine, uh, Eric Sweet and um, Chris Wright. Uh, we we flew out to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro, which was pretty cool. It was like a uh, four day adventure just to get out to the mountain itself. Um, mm-hmm. We hiked through rainforests, jungles, deserts. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was cool. We saw, you know, wild monkeys <laughs> just crossing our paths out in the jungle, you know, and like it was it was pretty weird, but um, they could just rip your arms off if they wanted to. But um, yeah, so we ended up we ended up hike, do it, it was about a four day hike and out, out, out to uh, Kilimanjaro. And then um, what's the elevation? So we started, I believe, at the same height as Washington. So it was 6,000 feet. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the end elevation was, uh, 19,341 feet. Wow. Amazing. So you got to do this in four days. Yeah. You have to acclimate in four days. Is that how that works? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Well, the thing is you can't, the way they did that 
the route we took, you the, you didn't acclimate. You did their their whole way of like acclimating <laughs> us was walking slowly. But you don't acclimate walking slowly. Like to to properly acclimate, you'd have to go up to a certain elevation, come back down, spend oh, yeah. the night, and then go up higher, <laughs> and you'd repeat that process. Well, huh. that's not the way we did it. That's we just amazing. hiked slowly yeah, and go back down. We ended up getting to um, <laughs> our last. Um, little spot where we were going to take a nap before we summited. And, uh, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And the deal was we would, um, we would sleep until, uh, 11 and then we would start at, at acclimating start at midnight. <laughs> yeah. And we were at 15,000 feet at that point. And I remember saying to, uh, Eric that, uh, oh man, this just feels easy. Like, cause we were walking slow. It was no big deal. The whole hike really felt easy. And, um, so then we had like a little issue with um they checked our um uh oxygen level in our blood every yeah. every time that we would stop at these camps to sure. see if we could continue hiking. And um on that last time that this was the first sign that there was an issue with me. And on that last time they checked that my, that number was going to a spot that wasn't good. Do you recall what it was? I don't, but okay. um, Eric ripped it off my finger before it reached that number, and um, he, he <laughs> lied. Is bliss. He just said, "Oh, the number is this," <laughs> and so, so the so they wrote down the number that, that that would allow me to keep going. But probably that was the first sign that there was something wrong with me. It did huh. it hadn't slowed me down yet, but it was it was a sign. And um, oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, the, the second time was the second sign was at seventeen thousand feet when uh, second sign is why are you bleeding out of your eyeballs when uh, <laughs> my body just shut down and oh, that was wow. it I was in for a fight of my life and um, uh, I couldn't even I couldn't breathe I couldn't drink anymore because anytime I try oh. to take a, a sip out of my bladder I would almost pass out I would just see flashes and almost pass out so hmm. from that point I before I even told anybody what was happening I made the decision that I couldn't drink anymore um, and so my hose froze because I couldn't keep drinking and blowing the water back into the bag um, so that froze and then I could no longer drink water and then um, Eric had asked me, his hose had frozen and he had asked me if I could tuck his hose in, in his back so he could melt it. And I told him, yeah, cause you're going like, to be got, dead on trail soon. So I might as well take your water. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I got like, I got angry with him and I said, Eric, just keep going. Just stop. You can't, can't stop. You know, and he just turned around and looked at me guys like, cause I'd never talked to him like that before. And so he didn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And Chris had already, Chris had told me after the fact that he had already picked up on the fact that there was a problem with me by the way I was walking. Hmm. Um, and so then I just told them both what was happening. And I said to just sandwich me in and don't let the guide see me like this because I don't want them to stop this. Huh. Um, and then um, wow. it, it was basically from um, from 17,000 feet to, to nine, just below the summit. It was a fight <laughs> for my life to get up there. So you made it though, right? I made it. Yeah. I just one, I, I just looked at the ground and I just moved one foot in front of the other until I hit to hit the ridgeline at the top. And then I asked, uh, we were on the top and I asked somebody, um, how many more feet do we have until the actual summit? And they, they were like 300 feet. And it, th- at that point, um, 
I knew I had it. I could keep it together for that. And so um, hmm. I was able to just hold it all together until we reached the summit. Interesting. And then on the way down. So your body, your body was starving for oxygen, probably. I mean, in yeah, healthcare, it, it's it was, a, that that pulse oximetry is like that's crazy. Generally under under ninety is is you know the the red flag. Obviously, you can like yep. supplement with oxygen and things like that. Did you see any oxygen on that mountain? No, they. I I think that if you needed oxygen, you were you were going out of there. They were taking you down. Like there was hmm. people that needed to. They had these. Um, they had these stretchers that had like motorcycle wheels on them with shocks and everything. Huh. And, and guys would run you down the mountain, you know, if something happened. And so mm. um, nobody, I didn't see anyone needing oxygen or, or, or uh, that even being an option. But um, so, so how, how, how did you find the guides for this? Did you do any research about that or did you just pick some? Random, yeah, it was like, all, it was, no, no, it was all through REI. Oh, cool. Interesting. So it, it was a legit, it wasn't like just uh, these guys that we picked up in, you know, the curb of Africa or something. You know what I mean? It was, uh, it was a legit. Well, ser- well, I say that because on, on Instagram, I would get hit up by DMs from various yep. guide groups. And these guys would friend me and this and that and send me um, a message every like week or two saying, hey, brother, you know, like what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Spread the right. word. You know, it's like, oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. No, these, this, these, this was the actual an actual uh, guide service through REI, so it was legit. Huh? Cool. And had they known something was up, they would have probably pulled. Yeah, I love that Eric like knew enough to say like your your oxygen level is going too low. Like let's let's hide that from the guide so that you can get up there. Like, <laughs> He Eric didn't even skip a beat. He just pulled it off my finger before it could even get to that number. <laughs> Cerebral edema. So, that do you crazy. think? Here's here's an off offbeat question. Um, do you think you have any long lasting injuries because of that event? No, okay. no, I don't Good. actually. And and so when we hit the summit, um, we had said to the um, we said to the one of the guides, we said, "Hey, <laughs> can you can we run down this mountain?" And the the guide was actually going to be taking place in a Mount Kilimanjaro marathon, and so he was pumped, and he's like, "Nobody has ever asked me to do that before." And so we ran from the summit of Kilimanjaro all the way back down to that spot where we were at camp at the base of the mountain, which was fifteen thousand feet. Yeah. And um, as we were running down and losing elevation, all the stuff that was going wrong with me was just disappearing, like, you know, as I was losing elevation. So the headache would disappear, the nausea would disappear, you know, and by the time I was back down to the 15,000 feet, I was I was all good again. Hmm. So you're not the Superman I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> what is the terrain like on Kilimanjaro? Is it equivalent to anything in the whites? It was uh, it was all just um, small, loose gravel, and it was just a, a giant switchback all the way up to the top. Really? So, like, running down, like, as you're running down, our feet are, like, sinking into the into the gravel. You know what I mean? Like, you're... A whole, your whole like shoe would sink into the gravel, all soft gravel, okay. nothing big. Yeah, so mm-hmm. not not technical at all. It's just like the elevation is the only factor that makes it difficult. It sounds like. Yeah, and there wasn't anything. Not on our route. The route we did was uh, was nothing technical. 
you could anyone i mean there was people of all all different abilities and they were even saying it didn't it didn't matter if you were if you were in shape not in shape young old it affected the 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 elevation affected everyone differently you know there was a girl on the summit that was like 15 years old running around like it was no big deal and i was just like what is going on it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) wow all right, well, that's a hell of a story. Um, REI, I guess, is the way to go. Don't, don't, don't listen to your DM messages. <laughs> no. <laughs> and no. Uh, wow. And by the way, uh, the captain Chris Wright just um, tried out for one of the teams up here in New Hampshire. He's a hell of a guy. This is the first time I met him. Very impressive person. He um, he smoked me. He, obviously, I was sweating bullets. And he's just like, "Hey, what's going on?" <laughs> yeah. Very strong, strong hiker and uh, interesting person and. Uh, yeah, cool. You you hang out with some very strong people. Like um, I've not met Gwen in person yet. I, I she seems very impressive online with her accomplishments and um, all these people that you're with. You have a strong crew. That's great. It's it's good to have uh, buddies and people that can push and have your back. Definitely. How about, how about your ankle injury after Kilimanjaro? Tell tell us what happened and um, that's where you and I first started sort of conversing and yeah i i I had i had it was indoor climbing accident and um i ended up breaking my heel and then um you know they they when i went um when i went to the hospital they basically told me i needed surgery i was never gonna walk right again um they just started telling me all this stuff that I just did not want to hear. Um, mm-hmm. I would never wear, I could forget about climbing. I'd ne- I was never going to wear tight shoes again. Um, hiking would, if it happened, it was going to be years down the road. Um, and uh, so I didn't, I, I didn't want to, obviously I didn't want to, I couldn't make that call right away. And they were basically trying to tell me I had to have surgery that Thursday. And it was like a Monday Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm, and I needed to make a decision the next day and I ended up doing, doing some research and just, they wanted to put this plate in me with screws and that was going to be in me for a year. And then they were going to have to take all that stuff back out. So there was going to be another operation. And then there was tons of people that had ended up getting infections because of this. And, uh, so I ended up not, I didn't do it. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't use the only thing I used the hospital for or the doctors for was, x-rays and i did everything on my own i did all my own pt um i never stopped hiking through the entire time Uh, i never stopped climbing Hmm. i went to the gym still um every single day (laughs) on crutches um and um i ended up getting they my buddies all got me um those crutches that uh are attached to your forearms you know what i'm talking about sure yeah, I'm not even sure what they're called, and that just allowed me to continue to hike in the whites with uh, <laughs> with my heel like that. So, were you a non weight bearing for a while, like legit? Like I was, yeah, for I think um, twelve twelve weeks. And you were still out there hiking. I hiked right through the entire thing. That's freaking yeah, I awesome. Climbed, That's like the listeners got to go to this dude's crutches. page on Insta and check out these pictures because I scroll back a ways to look, and you're out there with those <laughs> loft strands. Uh, just yeah, hiking you can, around. You it's, can find me uh, at Mason on Adrenaline. Yeah, yeah. We'll put those all in the show notes and stuff. So, 
and I climbed too. I climbed with one foot, um, <laughs> and um, and I just continued to. I, do, I like documented everything, and uh, and um, I would go and I'd get these X-rays, and I'd get into arguments with the uh, technicians in there because they would tell me I had no business. Um, you know, like reading these X cause I wanted to see the x-rays every time. <laughs> right. And they're telling me one thing and I'm like, so I'm like, wow, I can't believe how good that looks. And they're telling me you, you're not even close to being recovered. And I'm like, huh. you know, whatever. And then, so, uh, when I, we finally get to the last x-ray, um, I, I, they tell me that I still, I'm, I still am not recovered. And I'm like, the only reason I can see the crack still in that x-ray is because I actually know where it is. Um, mm-hmm. And other nobody else who could see that crack on my last x-ray. So I told the technician, I said, that was the last time you'd be seeing me. And uh, I took the boot off that day and, um, and, and just started weight bearing on it and um, <clears throat> wearing regular sneakers and all that good stuff and just started slowly building back up. It's Wolf's Law. That's, that's fascinating. Do you think with with the medical industry, I sort of I feel like they have sort of a bell curve of treatment where they know like okay if you you fall into this sort of normal bell curve of treatment, they can give you a general sense on how to approach it and what the likelihood is for recovery times and total recovery. But I wonder like is there somebody like you that's sort of really focused on health and wellness and has a determination to continue on with the lifestyle that you've continued, you know, that you've been um, focused on for the last few years. Like, are you just outside the bell curve where most typical medical treatment would miss your recovery or your capabilities just because they're so used to just assuming like most people wouldn't behave the way you would where you're going out and actually being active during your recovery? I think it was actually the fact that I was active during my recovery was what made me recover so fast, I think. Um, and I mean, he, the doctor ended up getting really mad at me and, uh, told, he basically told me, you, you have no idea the mistake you're making. You're never gonna, he's telling me all these things that I'll never do again. And, um, and I honestly just got the sense that he was mad because he wasn't going to be getting paid for that surgery, you know? Um, so well, that's what I was going to say, like there's, there's a monetary drive here sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah. And as far as like, um, the, like me doing my own PT and that's nothing against, um, you know, obviously, you know, you're in that field and that's nothing against anyone in that field. I just felt like for myself, I've always done this with everything. Just like when we talked about the climbing and anything I've ever done work that needs to be done at my house, I always do everything on my own. Um, so I felt like I could just do my own PT and, um, and, and, and I didn't need to go somewhere for it. And, and ultimately it ended up working out for me. Hmm. And I ended up, (laughs) I ended up, um, becoming a better climber and I was they told me I would never run again. They actually told me I would n- never, ever run again. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I've run so much this year, it's not even funny. Hmm. So can we go back to the injury itself? So what was it? It was your heel bone, the calcaneus, that got crushed? or Yeah. Okay. It, it, it broke into three pieces. Okay. Um, and so, so basically the only thing that – the only um, – 
thing that I'm left with is um, because I didn't have the surgery, my my right foot is a little bigger than my left foot. Sure. Because um, because my heel is a little deformed. So it, it makes my, my foot a little bigger, mm. but it's no big deal. I just take out, um, I just take out the insert on my right shoe and it, and it, and it works out perfect. I'm not, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon by any means, but I think, I guess one risk would have been had those three pieces healed incongruently, it could have maybe provoked chronic pain and that would have effed your career. Yeah. And that's what that's what I was told. I was there's going to be um, arthritis and all this other stuff. And, and I mean, honestly, the way I looked at it was, I was probably I'm probably going to deal with that stuff anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, whatever. Uh, I'm just this is how I'm going to roll with it, and uh, awesome. it, I'll deal with whatever comes my way. Yeah. And we talked about huh. this with when Martin Pisani was on. So we, he <laughs> Martin was is an author of a book talking about sort of like how hiking is the fountain of youth, and one of his points was that you can over overdo it to the point where you injure yourself, where you go past that line where you yeah you you would be in the situation like those doctors warned you. Clearly, you you didn't it didn't end up happening for you. But do you worry at at some point that you're you know you do too much of an intensive focus and too many miles, whether it's running or hiking, that you might burn yourself out over the long term? Yeah. So this year, um, so this year I took on uh, a lot of stuff that I'm doing, and um, and so I basically don't really have any rest days. Um, and so since January 1st, I've just been on a tear and I've been just doing huge stuff every single week, every month. And it's just nonstop. And, um, it, I definitely feel like it's affecting me physically. I'm now nine months, almost through the ninth month. And, um, you know, I, I have inflammation issues that I fight in my left leg. Um, I feel like I'm patching myself up every single day to just buy myself the next day. Um, and and even uh, mentally, I think it, it is it is kind of getting to me mentally, too, um, just from the constant grind. Uh, and and nev- I just, yeah, I just can never, I just got myself into a situation where I feel like I can never stop because I set so, my goals are so big. Um, and I'm the type of person that when I um, set these goals that I'm committed to them and I'm not going to stop. Um until I'm done. And so basically now I'm at a point where I'm feeling the pressure (laughs) and it's, uh, it's, it's been tough. Do you feel like you're losing? Because we talked about, matter of fact, I think we talked about, I talked about this with Jeff Rogers where uh, on the show that's, you know, one or two shows before this, where, you know, you become so focused on your goals and your, need to accomplish things that you lose the love of the activity. Do you think that you're, you're, you're risking that at this point? Uh, no, I don't think I'm going to lose the, the love to, for hiking or, I mean, I even, I had to put my climbing on hold this year because um, there's just no time for anything but my goals. And so I, I, I have not really climbed this year, but I haven't lost my love for climbing and I haven't lost my, my um my love for any of the other stuff uh i will say this uh, i'll never take on a challenge like this again um 
I still will continue to push myself, but it will just be, um, uh, it would be like spaced out, you know, where I could have recovery time and all that other stuff that you should have. Um, but I'm not, but I'm definitely glad that I've done this. Um, I've learned a ton about myself and what I'm capable of. Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm happy that I've done it, but it's, it's definitely, and it's definitely been a lot of pressure. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough thing. Like I came, I came into hiking from a running background and I, you know, I wasn't, a, I wasn't winning a lot of races, but I was reasonably competitive. And I think for me, my, my sort of white wheel that I kept chasing was the Boston marathon qualifying time. And I was definitely running fast enough to do it. My problem was, is that as I trained to run that qualifying time, I would constantly get injured. So I think I suffered enough injuries where it scared me enough to the point where I was like, wow, if I, if I go past a certain line, like I may lose the ability to actually do this running stuff. And then eventually like you, I got into hiking and hiking has overcome my interest. I run in order to stay in shape, to do the things I love to do around hiking now. Um, but I'm, you know, my old age, I'm sort of just dealing with the fact that I can't do what I, I used to be able to do as far as extreme stuff goes, but you know, finish this year up, Steve, I would say, and then, you know, maybe take a pause and, and make sure you're balancing out your, your health versus your, your achievements. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So Steve, the, um, you just broke a fastest known time. Did you purposely go out and say, I'm going to crush that time? Or was this just a fluke or what? Yeah, no. Well, so, so I've learned, so I've been doing just a ton of endurance challenges this year and I've learned, um, endurance is my thing. And so I, I, I like, I know how long it takes me to do things. And when I saw the FKT for that, um, I'm not really all about like, um, being super, I'm not the fastest guy in the world. I am fast, but I'm, there's definitely a lot of people way faster than me. Uh, I've learned that endurance is my thing. Okay. But so when I saw the FKT for this, this, um, super extended Pemi loop, um, I, I knew just by the mileage and the elevation gain that went with that, that, um, that I could beat, I could get that FKT by a couple, two, uh, two and a half hours. I think I ended up, um, getting it by. Um, so it's a super extended Pemi loop. It was 14 of the 4,000 footers. So starting at Lincoln woods and, um, Lincoln woods trail to the Osseo trail up, uh, to the Franconia Ridge hitting flume, little haystack. I mean, uh, Liberty, little haystack Lincoln, and then Lafayette. And then once I hit Lafayette, I dropped back down to North Lafayette mm -hmm. and dropped down onto the Lincoln slide over to Owl's Head <laughs> and followed that slide down and uh, into the drainage, crossed Lincoln Brook onto the Lincoln Brook Trail, went up the Owl's Head slide to Owl's Head, and then I bushwhacked off the north side of Owl's Head down to the Lincoln Brook Trail again, took that over to the Franconia Brook Trail, mm -hmm. and then up to the Garfield Ridge Trail, where I did an out and back to Garfield, and then headed over to Galehead. From Galehead, I went up to South Twin, and then over to North Twin. I dropped down the North Twin Trail, crossed the river, and then I went up the Firewooden Trail to Hale. And then from Hale, I went down the Lendahan Trail over to Zealand, took Zealand Hut took the twin way up to Zealand, um, 
and then did uh, West Bond, Bond, Bondcliffe, and then back out down uh, Bondcliffe Trail, Lincoln Woods Trail, into the car. Jesus. And that so, ended up being, I think... You guys remember that scene in Ace Ventura when he takes the deep breath before he goes on that long rant? <laughs> <laughs> he did that whole thing without a single breath. <laughs> That's freaking incredible, man. So yeah, that was uh, that was a, a fun one. That was uh, I think that ended up being um, fifty two miles and um, eighteen thousand feet of elevation gain for that one. Yes. Um, and I did that in sixteen and three quarter hours. Hmm. Um, and I basically carried everything in a um, an ultimate direction vest that I had. Um, I had uh, a one and a half liter bladder of water with me and two uh, 0.5 liter soft flasks and uh, and a filter. And um, and then just I basically did the whole thing on goose and salt salt tabs. Really? <laughs> um, and you use a bladder when you hike. Uh, yeah, it all depends on what I'm doing. So on that one, I did use a bladder because, uh, I knew I was going to have to, um, there was going to be, I wasn't going to have water available as easily as like on other things that I've done. Like on, when I did the hut to hut traverse, I just rolled with my two soft flasks cause I knew I could make it from each hut, um, to the next hut with that small amount of water. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Steve, you're an animal. Well, I think uh, you had been talking about doing a uh, single day Pemi and Prezi. Have you done that yet, or was the weather a problem? Or yeah, so I was actually supposed I'd be I would have already been done with it. I was going to start at midnight first thing Thursday, and um, gotcha. and I would have done it today, but the weather wasn't cooperating. So I'm actually going to um, go for it on Saturday. Now the weather looks a little awesome. better for Saturday. And that's actually the the uh, the last one of my goals that I have hanging over my head. Um, so that'll take a little bit of the price. I still have three months of to go for the year, but uh, that's like the last commitment that I've made. Um, and uh, <laughs> but uh, I I feel like you know as long as as long I feel like it's you know I I know I can do it. I've already done a double prezi. Um, I've done two different um, single day double PEMI loops. Um, so I know that that it's, it, it's just a matter of me getting out in there and doing it. Has anybody done a triple PEMI? Uh, no one's done the triple PEMI. Uh, that was what I was oh going. That's God. why I ended up doing two. So the first time I went out to do the triple PEMI, I, um, I ended up, I ended up, I not sleeping and uh, I went into it with only two hours of sleep and when I got around to the second time, I realized that uh, mentally I just was not with it anymore. And so I didn't mm. feel comfortable going around for the third time. So I called it after the second one. Um, but um, so then I lined up some people to, to do each loop with me, but um, it, one of them fell through. And so I ended up having to do this on my second time. I ended up having to do the second loop by myself. And again, I fell apart mentally. Um, so uh, I ended up calling it after. Where? Yeah. Like what, oh, Where um, did you start falling apart? It, uh, uh, the, the first time I fell apart 
on the first one, I fell apart at the second time I hit Garfield and the second time I fell apart, the second time I hit Bond Clift. <laughs> okay. Cause Garfield Ridge trail, man, that oh, is a just, beast. Yeah. And when you know, you have to go around that three times, like even just oh. for me to wrap my head that I went around it twice in a day then oh thinking God. I still had a whole nother time. It was just like, it was, I wow. needed somebody with me. And so I'm oh, going to yeah. do it. I'm going to do it next year. Um, I just, I just couldn't waste any more time on it this year. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, cause it had taken away from time, my other stuff. And so I decided to, I was going to just hold off and I'll, I'll go for that next year. Are you always doing these PEMIs clockwise? So, uh, I did a, a winter extended PEMI. Me and my friend Gwen, we started the year off with a winter extended PEMI, single day winter extended PEMI. And we went counterclockwise for that one. But, um, yeah, with the, with the doubles and stuff, I, I prefer to go clockwise. Um, yeah, so you're going down Garfield Ridge and not up. Yeah, I mean, there's like pros and cons, but I just I think um, the like I, I I don't really think the climb up to Garfield and the climb up to South Twin going clockwise is that bad. I think it's worse the climb up to Garfield going counterclockwise and the climb up to North Lafayette going counterclockwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. In my sense. opinion, um, and I've done nine PEMIs this year, so I think I can make that call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's God. crazy! Oh man, oh, I don't even know where to, to go after this. I'm just like I, I mentioned my my dream thing that I created the uh, the lodge to dodge. Yeah, and so um, that's uh, that totally because. Uh, that's obviously going to be a little bigger than the hut to hut. And right when I well, read that, this, it's a stepping stone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally going to, I'm totally going to, I w- if I can, if I can get it in, uh, in October before it snows, then it's something I'll go after. But if not, I'm definitely going to go after it next year. Well, do you need help? Like, do you want support? I would love to be a part of that. Oh, yeah, I d- did. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I would, I will take the support because I've learned that, um, it's just easier that way mentally for me, you know, I'm sick of doing things. Let me know. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely will. Lodge to Dodge is like something I dreamed up after I failed on the hut to hut. And I'm like, it's, it's like a, uh, hut to hut on steroids and it's 7.7 miles and nobody's done it yet. And I'm, I'm too old to do it. So I'm like, Steve, please do it. Make me, make me proud. Yeah. Stomp. Don't get injured. You can do about three miles of this, Steve. You can do the whole thing, but stomp. no, no, I'm, I'm talking support. To about three or four miles. No, no, yeah, yeah. I'll, That's I'll it. be get I'll, in your car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll give them the, the Gatorade at the trailheads. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So what's what's next for you? So maybe so lodge got, to dodge, lodge to uh, dodge. And then else? I'm just going to, um, I, I'm, and then I'll do other things. I'll continue to train at, uh, the, where I train. I, I have this mountain that's about a half an hour from my house called, uh, mm-hmm. the Unkanunix and, uh, specifically North Unk is the one that I train on. There's a trail there called the white dot trail. And I like it. It's, uh, it's about six tenths of a mile and 725 feet of elevation gain. And I go there every single day and I just do laps on it. And, um, hmm. I've so far, um, so far this year, I've, um, for me doing all, 
all the laps, I 700,000 feet of my elevation gain this year has come just from that mountain. And that mountain is only 1,324 feet tall. And um, so um, it's amazing what you can do just on a, a smaller mountain if you if you just, yeah. you know, go up and down it, up and down it, up and down it. Hmm. Um, but uh, that's another mountain that, uh, I, I, I pretty much li- have lived there this entire year. And I even did a, a 24 ch- hour challenge on that mountain. And, um, I ended up getting 54 miles with 33,000 feet of elevation gain in one day. That's why your new nickname is go big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. That's your uh, slasher honorary nickname from Slasher. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So oh, basically, man. I'll I'll Saturday I'm going to go after the Prezi single day Prezi Pemi, and then uh, I think uh, after that the there's no there's no pressure uh, as far as any like things that I have written down on paper. Um, and I think I'll just have some fun after that, and uh, and not have to stress about. Um, you know, I've I've had to do things in weather that I didn't want to do them in this year because everything has to happen a certain time when you have so many mm-hmm. goals. And so now with that pressure gone, it'll just be nice to finish out the last three months and not have to worry about that kind of stuff. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Any other questions, Mike? That's a hell of an interview. Yeah, that was a hell of an interview. You're an absolute animal, and I'm I'm exhausted <laughs> listening to you. So. Thank you. I, but I honestly, like, I I will be honest. Like, I used to, you know, and I've evolved a little bit, but I used to be focused like that. Like, I would I would have like, and I was much more of a list guy. I was yeah. always like, I need to get the four thousand footers done in like a year, and I've got to get the. And I actually, I haven't even finished the four thousand footers, but I, I decided to do. 4,000 footers, 52 with a view, terrifying 25, and do a single finish on all three of those hikes. So I've got I've got that coming up. But I've slowed down over time. I've gotten more injuries, and I've sort of tried to get a little bit more zen about my hiking. But I, I you know I respect people that are going for it and they're they're doing huge mileage. It's crazy to me at this point. But um, yeah, you know you've gotten some awesome. I'm sure you've got some incredible memories of some of these these activities but um the, a single day pemi and then a prezi put together absolute animal uh, i respect it that incredibly yeah i'm just too old and slow to do it now <laughs> that's part of the reason why i'm not into the list is because i can get caught up in stuff very easily and uh, if i was yes. gridden or if i was doing all these other things i would be fully engulfed in it before i knew it and uh it would take over <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I do have um, Stomp. I got a question for you. So Lodge to Dodge, I, yeah. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to guess, <laughs> right? So just based on the, the spelling here, I'm, well, a, well, I'm guessing well, that maybe- Hold on, take a step back. Take a step back. Yeah, it's it's my baby. You got to treat it gently, okay? <laughs> right, no grand right, assumptions. So I, I, treat it I'm gently. I'm assuming that you're talking about like, <laughs> isn't there that Lodge on Musalaki or something? There's a, there's a lodge on Musalaki, and then is it to like a hike from Musalaki to Joe Dodge? I'm glad we're doing this because I'm I'm planting my property flag down right here, right now. This is like public public official announcement. It's the new challenge, right? I've had this I've had this percolating for about two years now. The start is at Ravine Lodge, so it's lodge. Which is on, it's on that's the on Musalaki, southwest right? corner of Musalak, right? So Gorge Brook. Okay. 
Yeah. So it from there it takes you up over um, up towards the shelter by the Asquam uh, Trail, I believe it is, to the shelter. Yeah. And then you're following the Kinsman Ridge Trail to, to the Fishing Jemmy Trail. And then you're jumping up onto Garfield Ridge Trail, up over the Prezies. Ultimately, you come down to Carter Notch. But the trick is you're going up over the Wildcats and then back to Joe Dodge Lodge. So it's Lodge to Dodge, 70.7 miles. It's basically a section hike of the AT with a little bit of a detour. Well, it's a hut to hut. Oh, it's a it's a basically it's a hut to hut traverse, but you're adding that you're adding the lodge the, and the dodge. <laughs> and yeah, so exactly. Yeah, but the thing is, Joe Joe Dodge is a historical figure that we have to cover. I mean, he is the one that basically developed search and rescue and radio communication and Tuckermans and everything else. This guy's amazing. So just to do him a little honor would be great. So yeah, Steve, you're going to be the first. Definitely. We'll make it happen. It's going to happen. That's another way to get your FAK, F- FKT, is you just invent new routes. You'll be the first, the first yeah. time, and then you'll no, get the yeah, FKT. Yeah, that's true, but it's like, uh, it, but then it inspires people to go out and, 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 and beat that time, too, you know what I mean? So, yeah, you yeah. would have the FKT on anything you did first. But uh, Yes, exactly. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but anyway. That's um, awesome. So awesome. So, Stomp, I think we're going to, so we're going to run out of time here. So I think what I'm going to do is skip the recent search and rescue news. And then we're going to get into the Michael Miller mystery. But I do, there's one search and rescue thing that I wanted to kind of throw out to the audience here. So we have, again, we have Steve Mason and Steven Rodriguez here to give us their perspective. But one recent news article came out that I want to throw out here is bone fragments were found on Loon Mountain. All right. So there was a construction crew that was doing some excavation on Loon Mountain. And as part of that, they, one of the, and I actually was able to read the account of one of the workers on there. They basically found bone fragments. They didn't know if they were animal or human. And then as they were digging, they actually found some bone fragments that had human hair in them as well. So um, they were able to report this to uh, law enforcement and, um, you know, they ended up shutting the work site down for a couple of weeks and they did some excavation around these bone fragments. And now it's with the state police. They're forensically looking at, um, you know, trying to identify these bone fragments. And obviously, like the first thing that came to mind was the, you know, whether or not this might be Mara Murray. So Julie Murray has put out a statement saying that, you know, she's just waiting for law enforcement to give them more information. Um, you know, and there's always been rumors that one of the theories around the Mara Murray situation is that, um, there was rumors that she had potentially made contact with some workers that worked at Loon Mountain. There was like these three brothers, I think that had worked at Loon Mountain that uh, she might've potentially got connected with. So they don't know whether or not that's true or not, but a lot of people are basically freaking out thinking like, maybe this could be the uh, the break that that solves the Moramari case, or at least gives some some closure to the family. So I don't know, Stomp. What do you what do you think? I, I mean, it's plausible. I mean, they made a pretty strong case about those those loon workers and put them in the area, put them on uh, the route that she was on when her car failed. So you never know. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, there there 
how many other stories have we heard this year of bones being found? I mean, I, people die in the woods, unfortunately, and they get lost. And they yeah, I think the the only hesitation I have around this is that Mara went missing in I think February, and you know if 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 she was involved with workers at Loon and there was some sort of a, a burial that like it would be very difficult to bury a body on Loon in like in the winter you know they they wouldn't be able to do that so if if it is in fact turns out to be her my guess is that somebody would have had to place place the remains in that area in the you know after the after the death so I don't know. Any of you guys got any thoughts on I this? think just the reverse. I mean, if these people worked at Loon and they had access to all the mechanisms and the trails and everything else and the knowledge of the the trail system and everything else, it might be easier. If I were a criminal Could be. murderer. <laughs> yeah, I mean. What would I do? <laughs> Jeez. They could have put her in there just as easy as they got the guys dug her out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. Unfortunately, they said it's going to take like two or three months for them to uh, be able to process the DNA and, and figure out whether or not this is a you know a potential match. For what it's worth, like one of the workers was on re- on the on the Reddit site from Murray and it said that uh, they thought that the bones were pretty new. But I don't know how you would know whether bones look new or old. Yeah. I don't know how you judge that. Like what? Yeah. How do you know? So did they? Um interview these workers back in the day decades ago and where are they now the whole worker thing is a it's it's very difficult to pin down is there's like there was two rumors one was that she had stopped at a convenience store outside of north haverhill and that there had been some people that she had been spotted speaking with i think and potentially they were these three, two brothers and a cousin or something that worked at Loon Mountain. And then there was another rumor that there's two local brothers that um, were involved in this. And I think that the three workers at Loon and then the two brothers that are locals kind of got misconstrued as all being Loon workers when it was actually two separate groups of people. Hmm. So it's very tough to know. Like, it's really hard to pin down. Like, honestly, you have to go back to like, these old message boards from like 2006, 2007 to figure out exactly who these people are. And it's, it's just very difficult to pin down. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll keep you updated on this. So, um, But the next segment that I wanted to cover here, this is a fascinating one. So as part of the Mara Murray situation, somebody had posted a link to the list of missing persons in New Hampshire. And I had actually gone through that list and spotted a case that I had never heard of before, and I was actually fascinated. Uh, it was from 1983, so we talked about it in the show opener. I had no idea about this story, so I'm guessing you guys probably don't know about it either. But in 1983, there was a student from MIT. He came up to hike falling, you know, he, he pulled up to the parking lot of Falling Waters. It was three MIT students. It was two students and, I think, a graduate student that might have been a professor. Um, One of the students' names was Michael Miller. And it was October 23rd, 1983. They set out to hike the old bridal path, three of them. Um, And Michael Miller, he was dressed in jeans, leather jacket, you know, winter gear. Back then, you know, that was pretty much standard hiking gear. 
he left the trailhead, headed up Old Bridle late in the day. I think it was around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He was in a little bit better shape than the other two hikers that he was with. None of the three hikers had any experience or knowledge of the area. They were just MIT students out for an adventure. Um, They headed up the Old Bridle Trail. Somewhere along the trail, pretty close to sort of the, the beginning of the trail, Michael yelled out to his friends and said, hey, I'll see you up at the top of the mountain, Um, moved off on his own, apparently went off trail somewhere. They don't really know from Old Bridle exactly where he went off trail. There was some reports that people had seen him in or around the Greenleaf Hot area, but once he separated from his two hiking companions, he was never seen again. So what ended up happening was is the two hiking companions... I don't know if they summited or if they ended up turning around. Clearly, they must have had sort of a panic situation where they couldn't find their friend, eventually decided to to leave for the day, went back down to Boston, notified Michael Miller's mother sometime the next day. Clearly, back then, you didn't have internet or anything like that, so they started uh, you know uh, pushing a search. By that time, like the the weather had dropped below freezing, snow had come in. And I think by day three or four, they had a staging area at Falling Waters and an actual search going on where they had fishing games, civil air patrol, volunteer searchers going in. And they spent, I think, day three, day four, and day five doing full searches up. Um, I think I'm trying to remember what brooks there are. There's Lafayette Brook, and then is it Walker Brook, I believe? Yeah. Right. Walker's right yes. off of Walker's right off of Old Bridal. Exactly. So they they search Walker Brook and they search Old Bridal or um, Lafayette Brook, and they had like I think eighteen people from fishing uh, fishing game, and then they had volunteer hiker volunteer search. I don't really don't know what the infrastructure was for search and rescue back then, but they spent I think three full days searching. They had um, civil air patrol and visual searches going on, and they never located him. Um, and he was an MIT student. He was an architect major, and he was, a, I think, a radio DJ in the local um, radio station for MIT. And I, I was actually able to pull three or four articles from the union leader and then also three or four articles from the MIT tech newspaper talking about this. So it was very interesting. There was some of his friends that had indicated that they weren't happy, that they didn't think that they were searching with a lot of urgency, and they didn't have enough people on the ground to find him. The mother was there in the parking lot hoping for the best. Um, searching, Search and rescue team members were sort of like, you know, based on this weather, like we don't think it's likely that he had survived within, you know, day four, day five. They were like, there's no way he's surviving. This is a recovery effort. Um, but fast forward all this time and effort, he's never been located. So he's up on the mountain somewhere. And I had never heard of this case, which fascinated me. So he was wearing a leather jacket. Um, He didn't have, obviously, enough clothes to be surviving in those conditions in that time of the year. You know it can get cold. Um, So he's never been located, which is very interesting. And I, I thought I would cover this case with you guys because I think between the three of you, you probably have more knowledge of this area than anybody else. So I just wanted to throw it out there to figure out, like, you know, what... You know, how likely is it that 
this can happen where you couldn't find somebody after something like this. Oh, I think that's very likely. I mean, (laughs) you just, it's, it's, there's so much area out there and it would be tough to just, you know, you could, you never know that the guy could have fallen in a hole or, you know, you have no idea. Some, someday someone out there bushwhacking will, will come across them, you know? Yeah. It's the, uh, the role of the bushwhacker. (laughs) <laughs> the unfortunate I mean, burden of the bushwhacker. We found a guy's. Um, uh, some. I'm not sure if you were. If you were. How long have you been on the Pemmy Search and Rescue? Five, five years. Yeah. Do you remember that case? The guy who Randall Willett. His name was. It was like the most expensive search and rescue out there. I think. Um. He. He was. He was on the the eastern side. The Lincoln Slide. Lincoln's throat. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And we found all his stuff. We thought it was a body. We were going we were going down that slide and someone was like, What is that? And I'm like, I'll go check it out. And we literally thought it was gonna be a body. Well, it was it was all his gear. We took pictures of it and sent it to fishing game and um mm-hmm. they actually they hadn't uh finished up the investigation yet. They still wanted to go through his pack to see if he was prepared to even be out there. And so they were happy that we found his stuff. And uh I guess they just like lowered a litter down and took him out and all his stuff was left there. Oh but, sure, uh, yeah. So I mean, wow. someday somebody will will come across them. And this was in midwinter, or at least snow covered. Well, it was October, October late. So October twenty third, nineteen eighty three. So, so there's maybe light snow. It up was top. getting cold. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there was over the course of the five day search, there was winter and snow and and freezing conditions there, where to the point. Where the uh, the news article said that there's no way that he he could survive up there. Hmm. Yeah, it's just vast. It's vast. I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many side, smaller, secondary drainages too. It's like you know, everybody talks about the primary drainages, but there are so many smaller avenues that you could get thrown into that would just. And every minute, every hour that goes by, the search area just gets wider and wider. Mm. Yeah, and I was trying to read the articles to figure out if there was a a specific piece of information around where he had left the the trail, and you know they indicated it was close to Walker Brook, but also the fact that they had they had indicated that he had been spotted by the hut makes me think that it is completely possible that he may have done the classic mistake of getting up to Lafayette and then heading down to, you know, towards Garfield and Skookum Chuck. And then, you know, that could be the reason why they never found him is because he made it to the peak, headed down the wrong direction towards Skookum Chuck. And then nobody, because I just think about like when I missed, I was hiking in foggy conditions and I missed the easy way to get onto the Lincoln slide and I had to bushwhack through and it's just, it's nothing but spruce traps and deep, oh, yeah. deep rocks and, and, and trees and somebody falls down there, hits their head and then you'll never see them again. And I can't imagine anyone's been in a lot of those areas in hundreds of years. Like you really ever get anybody going through those deep uh, sections of off the backside of Lafayette. Yeah. Or think maybe they came down like those two trail runners this past oh, February. Yeah. They just went right down into Lincoln Brook or Lafayette Brook. Sorry, Lafayette Brook. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the guy that lost so his shoe, right? Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. They just diverted right off to the side and went down into oh, the Oh, yeah. I, f- I feel like when you're coming off Lafayette and, and, there, and there's like, you can't see the hut or you, and you're not familiar with the way that trail goes, um, mm-hmm. it's so easy to get off course right there. You know, I mean, a lot of people aren't familiar with that and they end up going too far right when they should be banging a hard left. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No question yeah. about it. Yeah. But, but again, Michael Miller was a young man. He was an architecture major at MIT. He loved music. Um, one of the guys that he was hiking with w- went on to become a pretty well known um, music producer. And, you know, he was very involved in the Boston music scene as well as the radio station at MIT. So he was just a young man in the prime of his life going out to have a good time with his friends. And, you know, he just got a little excited, got ahead of his friends, split up with the group, and then he just never made it home. And he's still sitting up there on the mountain, which is crazy to me because you really, when you think about the White Mountains, there's not that many situations where we've got missing people that have never been recovered. It may take a lot of years. Steve, you talked about like finding that person's gear. I've had a situation where I found somebody's gear after five or six years too. And you know, you, you have to imagine that it would be great if somebody ever was out bushwhacking that they found found the remains to at least give the family a little it, bit of closure. You know what I wanted to say real quick that I just thought of is, um, so all the Pemis I've done this year, there is a backpack, a 60-liter backpack on the Garfield Ridge Trail um, in between North Lafayette and the Garfield Pond. Um that is just sitting on the side of the trail. It's been sitting there since January. So I don't know if there's like a person missing out there or like what the deal is, but this pack is fully loaded, has been sitting on the trail since January. Wow. Interesting. So you never know out there. Right. That's crazy. Didn't take a peek. I took a peek in it this last time and there was, it, it looked like somebody had went through it because there was a, uh, the micro spikes are still attached to it and everything. But, uh, when I opened it up to look what was in it, the bat, the sleeping bag that was in it was not like rolled up like it should be. So it looks like somebody yeah. might've taken the sleeping bag out and like to look through it, but, and then just stuffed it Where all back Where was it in there. exactly? Can you like give me a better location? It's so it's like, uh, it's, West it's of closer. Garfield Pond or where? No, it's so it's fewer. It's in, it's actually if you were coming off of North Lafayette, and uh, once you co- once you come down into the trees, uh, I'd say mm-hmm. about mm, maybe a half, three quarters of a mile to a mile in on like this. It looks like people have camped on the left side, so you're heading towards Garfield Pond, and there's like a flat section of trail, and there's like some stealth spots to uh, like off to the left. And it's the backpack is literally sitting right on the side of the trail. It's like right next to the trail, and it has been sitting there. I first noticed it when we did the winter pemmy, and I've noticed it every single time I've been out there. And I just thought to myself, when I first noticed it, I thought, oh, the person was either going to the bathroom or looking for a camp spot. But that thing has been out there all all year so far, nine months. I've seen it out there. It's crazy. You would think someone would have grabbed it by now. Yeah, there's not. I've never even heard any talk about it on any like the you know, sites or anything. Yeah, it is interesting. Like there's just a lot of stuff just sitting out there and and this area is vast. So, you know, hopefully, you know, stomp you and your crazy bushwhacking friends. (laughs) If you get out there in that area, you know, start digging around. Uh, Maybe you can find Michael Miller. 
Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, bushwhacking can be pretty creepy sometimes because you run into some weird stuff. Oh, my God. You really do. I talk to bushwhackers that are like, man, I'm carrying a gun. I mean, I don't know who I'm going to run into out there. Like, yeah. Who knows? But yeah, I'll keep a lookout. This guy, Miller, is 60 years old as of today or or in this area. So that's an old case. He would have been. Yeah. He would have been 60 years old. This this webpage is pretty intense. I was looking at it and... um, it has all the pictures of the open cases and um, whew, 66 total. Back in the 2010s, it was 20. Like 20 Yeah, this is people. New Hampshire missing people. It's amazing. There's a lot of missing people out there. So yeah. we'll dig into a few more cases, but I thought that th- this was the one that really stood out to me as a, like, wow. I- I've never heard of it. And I, I, you know, I try to keep up on this stuff. And I was shocked to think that there's somebody that's been missing since 1983 that was never located. Mm, amazing. But on a happier note, thank you for coming by, guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah thank you for so much for letting me sit in. Oh, hey, anytime. You guys are the best. And we, we will get up to Reckless at one of these points. Jeez. Good, and I'll hold you to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. After October. Sober yeah. October. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I'm doing that. I'm going to do that finish hike in the next couple of weeks. So stop. I'll stop. I'll coordinate with you, and then Reckless will be where we'll eat dinner to finish it. All right. Sounds awesome. Good. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see everybody later. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Stuff. Steve, good to yeah. catch up. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. 